Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs' Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Dan Golding, the VP of Engineering at Triple Lift, a company seriously innovating in the advertising space. So let's not delay. Let's get Dan into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, Dan. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Sure. So my name is Dan Golden. I am the VP of Engineering at Triplift, which is an advertising technology company that's been around for about 10 years. We were recently acquired by Vista uh, Equity Group. So Vista is a private equity shop uh, for $1.4 billion. And I oversee our platform engineering team, which is around 40 engineers right now. That spans everything from DevOps to data science to our application engineering team. Excellent. Good, good, good. And um, I'm kind of curious as, as to what your journey to becoming a tech leader was. I, what was it like? Great question. So I had somewhat of a non-traditional background. I was always interested in computers ever since I was a kid. My dad is a self-taught programmer, so uh, I definitely picked up a bit of that from him. Uh, but in college, I studied mathematics, economics, always had the sort of applied sense. My first couple of jobs after college were what I like to joke around as data science before data science, right? A lot of regressions, a lot of math. And then over the years, I've converged and became more of a, I'd say like a full stack software engineer. Okay. I ended up doing my own company uh, for about two, three years. And that's when I picked up a lot of the, you know, you, you basically just have to wear a ton of hats when you're doing something on your own. Right, yeah. fighting fires, learning yeah. databases, UI, like backend. I, so that gave me a pretty strong foundation. And then I ended up joining TripleLift uh, after my company fizzled out as one of the first, I would say like half dozen engineers. Yeah. Um, the company was about 12 people at the time, TripleLift. And then I've been there for the past eight years and seen its growth from like the dozen or so people up to around 350 right now. Yeah, you kind of mentioned a, a second ago from your kind of techie journey that you were kind of a full stack engineer. Was you one of these kind of like legendary pie type T-shaped people or pie-shaped people or a cone? Uh, definitely more of a cone. I, I think I definitely leaned towards more of the back end, more of data systems. Right. Uh, at the same time, I, I think it's very valuable to, you know, have some sort of cursory knowledge of everything that's happening. Yeah. even if it's as simple as doing a tutorial or simple as smoking around, because I do think it makes it easier for you, you know, to emphasize with new members of the team, right? Or different focuses, different areas. I do think it's these days with the rise of open source, it's just incredibly difficult to, you know, just be a master of everything. Yeah. Like everyone does have to specialize. I think in many ways it echoes, you know, like medicine or traditional like engineering, yes. right? Like, it used to be the case where yeah, you're a doctor, you treated everything. And now you have cardiologists, you have like psychiatrists, yeah. podiatrists. And I, I think we are starting to see much the same thing on the software engineering side, just a lot more special specialization, a lot more depth in each of the tools. Yeah. And and from a tech leader perspective, I, I, this is an area that I, I find fascinating as well, because um, I, I, I've been, uh, I've seen the, the industry, the IT industry kind of uh, software industry develop and um, the specialisms within specialisms, as you describe them, um, are, are becoming more and more, you know, niches. So, um, I mean, how do you deal with that as a tech leader? Do you find that quite challenging? For sure. I, I think uh, it, it also goes to this idea of like when the company grows, when you're small, you generally want journalists, right? Because every, like the requirements change so often and so frequently that you're very much jumping from fire to fire or from type of problem to type of problem. And you want someone that could just get thrown into it and they'll figure things out. Like they may not be the best at every single thing, but they have both the attitude to jump in and fix things and also do a decent enough job yeah. right, to be able to across the entire stack. And as you get larger, you realize that, hey, this component is key and critical to our business. Let's invest in it. 
Yeah. I, it's also a case where and you also can't ignore the fact that this, like how this fits in with the rise of cloud platforms, right? Cloud computing. Like these days, Amazon does have a ton of services and, and Google, right? For that matter, Azure to make any of these specialty areas much more sort of set and forget it for you. Mm-hmm. And that's great when you're starting out, right? Because you're basically paying a premium in order to have a handle for you. And as you get large, you realize that, hey, like Amazon gives me 80% of what I want, but it's going to be more expensive or it's not going to give me sort of that peak performance that I would get by doing it myself. Yes. So I think you over time end up taking some of these areas you offloaded to Amazon realizing that, hey, these actually are very important for us to manage ourselves and then bringing them back in-house and then having, you know, dedicated specialists that you then justify having just due to the scale or due to the size of the problem. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, being a techie uh, yourself, you know, you're an evolved techie. Um, do you find that quite challenging to kind of keep your hands off or do you do you get kind of get your hands in there and think, oh, I'm going to have a go at this? It used to be very difficult. And I think... Uh, I think I'm also both blessed and cursed because I've been here for eight years. So I know, you know how the sausage is made. Like, why did we make the decisions we've, we've done? If I just came in to my role right now, I wouldn't have this history. So I think it would be difficult for me to be able to like jump in and help. Yeah. Uh, and even now, like even now we've built such a strong team that I'm generally trust them to do what's necessary and they're introducing technologies and approaches frameworks that I'm just not, not familiar with. Right. So even if I wanted to help, uh, like these days, I just don't have the technical ability anymore. Like it's yes. sort of like, you know, outgrown me. It's sort of like the kid that used to beat in chess or basketball and then, <laughs> Hey, lo and behold, start beating you. So there's an element of that, uh, where over the years, like more and more of what I was comfortable doing has been, uh, like taken over in a much better way by members of the team. Like yeah. the last thing to go was, down, uh, was the infrastructure piece. I think that tends to be one of the last things, right? That the senior, you know, engineers or like leaders take hold on to, right? Managing AWS, managing the cloud infrastructure, managing security. Like yeah. now, like they're just like even that's handed off. So I am involved more in like architecture discussions, right? Yeah. Being able to ask questions like, well, how will this change a year from now? Yeah. Like providing context on why we made some decisions in the past, like how we imagine them changing the future. But all the implementation and like the, you know, the frameworks really uh, belong to the teams right now. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. I love this kind of evolution of of uh, the the leader, the tech leader, as they slowly let go. You know, and uh, I guess kind of uh, I don't know. I'm thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you've become actualized as a tech leader of some sort. You know, at the kind of pinnacle. Yeah, I, I, there, I do think there's an element of when you're a new manager, or when you're a new manager, right? the scorecard just looks very different. Like if you're an engineer picking up a ticket, you can feel success after one day of work, right? You write some code, you deploy it, hey, my job here is done. Like as a manager, and the more senior you you get, the longer your time horizon is for some of these management, for some of these changes. Yes. So you can really measure your success on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. It needs to be like monthly, quarterly, like yearly. And um, I mean that, and uh, I think because of that, you do have a tendency, at least I have a tendency, to go back to doing what's comfortable for me. Yeah. Right, like, uh, even if you know in the back of your head that's not the most valuable thing you should be doing. And it's quite interesting you talk about, um, it's a great reflection, actually, and insight, because uh, as tech leaders, sometimes we don't feel like we're making a difference. Or as tech leaders in general, we're not making a difference. I don't know what I did today, but I seem to be busy. You know, do you you still kind of have that um, feeling? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I do think there's also some of like interruption like especially these days with like slack right and like constant like interruptions like how do you stay focused yes. on like the most impactful work and uh i mean uh, what i found helpful for me is having uh sort of like quarterly goals and then making sure at the end of the day that i'm planning tomorrow so basically planning tomorrow today Right. Yeah. When I'm done at the end of the day, I know what I was working on. I know what's important to make a point to carve out time uh, in my day tomorrow to yeah. make sure I, you know, I tackle it. Like, that's the way I stay sane in this world. Like yeah. at the same time, realizing that I do need to be available for others on the team. Right. Because in essence, a lot of part of my job is not doing the work myself. Right. It's just empowering others to do it, setting the context, setting the vision, setting the strategy. And to do that, it does require very much like communication yes. and working with the other leaders at the company. Yeah. And 
the, the interruption piece, because this is a topic that came up uh, quite recently for me with uh, a number of other kind of leaders. I mean, how do you deal with that that side of the interruption? Because you need to be there for your teams, but you also need to get some stuff done, you know? Yeah, it's a constant battle. I, I think I, I probably the true honest answer is over the years, I've probably maybe adapted myself to be more interruptible. I think what people say is when you are, you know, broken out of the zone, it takes you about 15 minutes to get back into it. I, I think over the years, I've probably narrowed that down where I could switch gears, work on something and sort of go back what I was working on without huge loss to productivity. Right. Um, uh, but like, but I also don't think it's sustainable. Yeah. I think just as a, I'm, I'm sure if you looked at the amount of focus time anyone really has, like over time, like it used to be the case that someone could work on a task for, I don't know, hour, two hours, three hours. Like I think it's very rare mm. to see that these days, uh, just because people have a tendency to check, like, you know, any of the blinking notifications. Yes. So I mean, what I what I try to do is I try to go to my calendar and block off time, especially for these dedicated like projects. Typically, at most an hour, just because I do want to be available. Like if anything comes up, but hey, if someone's not around for that hour, do it. And yeah. I've also had success, uh, and I don't necessarily recommend this, but I've had success working later at night. You know, when kids go to bed, like family goes to bed, yeah. uh, it's generally pretty quiet. Like catching up on a lot of these items between like ten and twelve at night, just to make sure I'm ready for the next day. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. I, it is a challenging time and we are. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, the adaption. You know, you've kind of changed the way in which you're able to build up those mental models, bring them down and bring something else quickly. in. you know, it's a, it's a kind of brain muscle, you know, that you've developed there. I don't know how true it is, you know, like it may be my fake like attribution to myself. And maybe I don't actually have the skill and I claim to have it, but it's definitely not a, like, I, I don't think it's optimal. So Dan, coming to your company then, you work for Triple Lift. What does Triple Lift do? What's the problem they're solving in the market? Great question. So Triple Lift, uh, I mentioned earlier, is an advertising technology company. The way to think about us, if you're not familiar with ad tech, is we sit in between publishers. So think anyone that's generating content for consumers, right to consume for you and me across yeah. various media channels. So whether it's websites, whether it's apps, whether it's television right through videos uh, and we help them. And then we sit between these publishers and advertisers who want to get a return on their advertising dollars. And even within advertisers, there's quite a gamut, right? You have the advertiser, like someone like a large brand, like a Coke or a Nike or Toyota, right? They want to generally get their brand in front of audiences that they deem valuable. And then you also have smaller like direct consumer brands that generally are looking for a conversion. Right. Wow. We want someone to click on an ad and then immediately buy a subscription. Right. And what we think of us as this neutral, so open web platform. So the open web is meant to contrast it with the walled gardens, right? So typically when you go to Facebook, right, everything within there is under Facebook's control. And a lot of brands and publishers right, don't like that. Right. right. They don't like the fact that they're giving up so much control on empowering Facebook. Instead, they want to keep the sort of the web free. Mm-hmm. And then that's where we come in. We're saying, let's give these publishers uh, across the open web, novel and engaging ways to advertise that don't ruin the customer experience. Because I, I think it's always been the case that you could create pretty terrible disruptive ads that yes. everyone hates, you know, like those pop-ups, like your little webpage, you want to read an article and then you get this full screen ad takeover that you're struggling to find the X button because it keeps jumping around. Like yeah. that's not us. Yeah. Right. We want to make sure that the, like we're expecting sort of all three uh, like parties here, right? We're expecting publishers, advertisers and consumers. And we've done that by innovating on these creative, like newer ad formats that take into account the changing and emerging consumer trends. So the first product we launched about eight or like around the time I joined was what the industry now coins native advertising. And it's this idea of uh, decomposing the creative assets, right? So an ad typically has, let's say, if you think about the traditional image ad, it has an image, a caption, a headline, and we would structure it differently depending on the publisher it would run on. So if a one publisher has images that are rectangles, we would crop and resize that image to fit their look and feel. We wow. would inherit their CSS, like their styling, their typography in order to make it look native to their site. And like, what does that do, right? It respects the publisher's layout, 
Like it lets them design their website for content first, not for advertising. And then users are also not sort of not uh, introduced to this jarring experience, right? It's as if they're reading a very well put together ICM theme. And that's been our approach, right? Like we've bootstrapped that to then launch a video product that still does like a video, uh, the same idea, right? Like uh, playing videos, but still respecting the look and feel of the publisher. And then recently, we have a product in like the fourth community or like connected TV market, which is a similar idea. It's like, we know that a lot of people are, you know, uh, cutting cable, right? Cutting the cord and going to streaming television. So what can we do to create this analogous ad format within streaming television? Right. right? And that ranges from what you think of, you see fairly often in these days in sports, right? Where you're watching a sports and there's a bit of a lull and you see an overlay logo for a brand in the corner. Okay. To some of the more advanced ones, which is like product brand insertions, right? Someone's watching a TV show and there's or and there's an empty desk on the scene. So one viewer will see a Coke can, another user will see a Sprite can. Oh wow. <laughs> I mean yeah. that's like the extreme form, right? Right. But but yeah. think about this idea where uh like these are the technology investments we're making in order to find these ad opportunities that are meant to be like on top of the consumer, the change consumer trends, right? Because users aren't, or consumers, you can't stop, right? The way content consumption happens, right? You can't resist it. All you can do is you sort of see where it's going and you try to take advantage. Yes, I understand. Yeah, so you're kind of, you're very agile and uh, adapting to, to the changes. You're, you're working with the changes as opposed to uh, trying to fig, uh, second guess it and figure it out and, and plan to that. Yeah, exactly. You don't like stick your, what is it, like that ostrich, you know, like sticking its head in the sand. Yeah. to avoid like being in like like that, that's a surefire way right to get eaten like you like we're uh, it's like we just need to be adaptable that's our like a big theme in the industry right like you go out of business if you're not it seems like a fascinating area i mean advertising is something uh, as you as you mentioned can be quite intrusive and uh, how are you kind of solving that from a technology perspective then are you are you are you creating a uh, a, a way in which uh, people that want to advertise come to your platform and say, you know, we want this. H how does that work? It's a good question. The entire industry is fascinating just because there are so many different players all trying to do, you know, different, like solve different problems, like along this chain of the advertiser spending money in order to, you know, get ads to show up on the publisher. Mm. So where we sit, like the traditional term is like SSP, right? It stands for like supply side platform. And what what you could think of it as doing, and, and this is like a simplification, but we represent like thousands of publishers. And what we do is we integrate with each one of them in like a very custom bespoke way, right? Cause we're doing this sort of native look and feel, right? We need to have this much tighter integration than traditional ad tech does. And then they send us every time someone lands on one of their web pages, they make a request that makes it into our real-time bidding system. And then our real-time bidding system decorates and transforms this request in order to make it as valuable as possible to the dozens of sort of uh, companies representing brands. Right. right. And we send them an API request. So, uh, so for example, we work with a company called Tradesk, the Tradesk, which is a very large demand side platform. And we will send them unique requests that they know how to handle and they know how to evaluate given the demand, right? Given them the campaigns and advertisers that they have loaded to their system. Wow. So we're neutral, uh, like in this case, right? Where we're saying we can get a request from Vulture and then we fan it out to dozens of these demand side platforms. They then each have their own proprietary logic to determine which ads to show, if any, and how much do they want to pay. We mm -hmm. collect the responses and then we identify the winner using a variety of like business rules. And some are simple. Like think of a simple rule would be the publisher says, I do not want, I don't know, any car ads. So in that case, if someone you know responds back with a car ad, we will block it. Yeah. And some of the more complex ones are evaluating like predictive performance in order to then adjust the behavior, right? Adjust and try to bias it in order to maximize the performance for both publishers and advertisers. Wow. It looks like you're trying to please everybody. Do you actually manage that? Because there's a lot of... Um... Uh, demands on, on, in different perspectives and different directions? It's a good question. I, I think there, for sure, uh, I guess what we can do is it's going to be impossible to please every single person or every single request all the time. What we can do is come up with an even 
level field, right? Where if someone wants to spend more money, we let them spend more money and let them win. Yeah. Right. So that doesn't mean like if you're only bidding, let's say a dollar and someone's bidding $10, like you will lose more often than not. Mm. But what we can do is we could give you that information. So you know why you lost, right? Yeah. We could give you the information, say, Hey, you are interested in this audience, but this audience is very competitive. Have you tried going to this audience, right? That will get you the same return, but albeit in a different way. Yeah. I love that. It's a nice feedback loop and also awareness of right, how what's working and what's not. And I guess, uh, as you described, the market's always changing. It's a, it's always in flux. So therefore, uh, the, the situation will always... So what you know... No, for sure. And that's why it's innovative, right? Like, there's a lot of ways you could, like, improve and evolve the market. But there were, just to give you a perspective of some of the stats, like, we're doing about 50 billion of these auctions a day, right? So what that means is there's 50 billion opportunities for us to win an ad every single day. Wow. And each of those comes in and then becomes a couple dozen requests to our partners yes. like on the on the buy side. So that sort of gives you a perspective of the scale we're operating at. Okay. I, I, I'm going to come, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to hold on to that question. I'm going to come back to that. But I imagine the kind of innovations that you do here, um, they're, they're public, people get to see them and other, other marketing uh, companies see that. Um, how do you kind of deal with that innovation being stolen from you or kind of copycatted? It's a, it's a good question. I think uh, it goes back to some of the principles of Attic that I've picked up over the years. And I'm sure everyone's going to have a slightly different sort of take or perspective here. But advertising has a couple of factors. One is it's generally out in the open, right? Because it all happens in the web. Yes. You could look at the source code and look at the networkers and see, hey, what are other companies doing? Like, how are they working? Of course, you don't see you know, all the backend systems, but you do see like the interface, right? How they're exposed. If someone has a new ad format, you can clearly see what that ad looks like. So that for sure, there's a lot of imitation and copying going on, like especially for things that work. Yeah, It's also very fast paced because it has one large scale, right? So you could experiment and iterate very quickly. And then two, each ad is like, it is a huge like multi-billion dollar industry, but each ad itself is worth fractions of a penny. So that does lead, so if you compare it to let's say financial, like FinTech, in that case, you do have the same scale maybe like a bit lower but each transaction is incredibly valuable right because mm -hmm. like you don't know if you screw up a million dollar transaction right. versus in our case like ads like each ad is worth fraction of a penny so if you combine the fact that it's an industry that is um like out in the open like each individual sort of request or each individual ad is you know generally like very cheap to screw up it leads to just very fast-paced growth and so going into your question, like for sure, there's a lot of like uh, cop uh, copying, right? Imitation and everyone tr is trying to do a little bit of everything, right? You could sort of think about like these uh, sort of octopuses, everyone's trying to you know, get their tentacles in everything. Yeah. Just because everyone's trying to get, you know, just grow their business because hey, we live in a capitalist world. Uh, so, I mean, going back to us, right? It goes back to our principles. Like how could we sort of do right by publishers do right by advertisers and do right by consumers by, yeah creating these new innovative ad formats. Like, and the, the reality is like, there are things we do that don't scale, like they're different scale, right? The fact that we're integrated with like each of our publishers in order to have this like native look and feel with our custom code, mm. right? Like it, that's just difficult to repeat, right? That is a mode we have that other companies don't have. So we avoid, you know, playing these like commodity heavy areas. Like we do invest in these marketplaces that do take time to build that do have like a high barrier to entry, like at the same time, once we have these integrations, it does become easier for us to launch and introduce newer ad products among sort of on top of these integrators on top of those pipes. So you can think of it maybe very much like this sort of plumbing analogy, which we use internally a lot, right? It's like lay the pipes and then try to, you know, widen the pipes, run the pipes, try to push more down the pipes. Like yeah. think of it as that, like analogy, like, like some companies, they may have laid the pipes, but maybe too thin, right? Or they may not support all sorts of, on all colors of liquid. Like versus in our case, we sort of lay and invest in that foundation in order to then make it easier for us to scale and grow and expand. Wow, love it. And um, obviously, you're you're in the kind of marketing industry. Do do you feel any any things that you've learned in this in this industry can be kind of transposed to other other uh, industries in the kind of uh, tech space? So, so for sure, like any company, there's a few, one, and this is what I tell a lot of people that, you know, that we're interviewing are interested or, you know, just aren't as excited or thrilled by ad tech. 
Mm. Right. Attic gives you a very good understanding of how the modern web works. Right. Because like in order to serve an ad, you have to understand browsers, like the different compatibility, yeah. different versions. You have to understand cookies, right? The way they work. You have to understand scale and like large like these large distributed systems. You have to think like understand like iframes and like cross like network requests. You have to deal with a lot of sort of like web technology in order to really deliver a strong experience. Like we're even doing like a lot of vanilla JavaScript in order to optimize, you know, our tag, like our JavaScript that's running in the browser. Right. So a lot of uh, like, uh, so a lot of what you go with that is really getting these foundations of, of like, you know, web programming. And for a lot of people, that's empowering, right? It's very interesting getting that foundation that they could then apply like subsequently, right? We're generally not using a ton of frameworks. We're doing a lot of things out of the lower level. So if you're interested in, you know, sort of getting peak performance at like a very large scale, like Atex great for that. And then uh, you could use that knowledge, right, in a variety of ways, right? If you want to work and get depth in like data engineering, like I mentioned before, like we're running about 50 million auctions a day and draining a couple hundred different, like a couple hundred billion data points. So if you're working on like, if you want to work on like big data, like the data, like our data engineer team is a great place for it, right? Yeah. If you want to work on this real-time bidding system that's doing a ton of I.O., and running these like auctions that need to respond in like 200 milliseconds, like we're a great place for that. Wow. Like, if you want to work on, you know, optimal performance in the browser, like our team that's working on like, you know, our JavaScript, but then JavaScript is a great place for that. Yeah. Right. So I, so I think there's pot like, yeah. like in Natic, there's just, it's not like an API. I, I mean, I, and not to dismiss other companies, right. But in, in many ways, like other companies have a much more standard product set, right. You have a UI, you have an API, you have a database. Like we generally have a much wider scope just by nature of what we're doing. It's um, again, it's kind of opening a, a window into an industry that I'm not particularly uh, familiar with. Obviously, we're always exposed to this, but it's this kind of uh, way in which you're trying. It's almost like, um, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of like a marketing war going on. Everybody's trying to one up each other. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's highly competitive and, and complex. Yeah, for sure. There's a... Uh, uh, I do that competition is breezed from the fact that it's once again like so fast paced and so out in the open and generally like lightly regulated. And I, I think because of that it leads to like a certain type of company succeeding. And coming back to yourself then, Dan, what's the thing as a tech leader rocks your boat? I mean, what's your kind of passion in this space? Good question. I, I think the passion evolves. Like at first I was definitely interested in like the tech challenges that you get from scale. Right. The fact that we're dealing with so many like large systems, how do you scale it? Like, mm -hmm. how could you go from handling it? Cause I, I know when we, when I joined, right, we built an exchange and it was doing maybe like million auctions a day. Right now we're like multiple orders of magnitude, like wow. more than that. Right. So just, you know, getting our systems to support that and scale and uh, like there and beyond. Like mm -hmm. we need to be investing in the foundation now in order for us to go from 50 billion auctions to 500 billion auctions. Wow. Right, so there's like that huge element and like now a lot of the challenges are very much like team structure like how do we move in the world like like once we're comfortable with our technology stack like how could we make each of our team more and more productive mm. uh, as the company gets larger and and that goes back to similar point around like architecture right it's like how do we decompose and think about the applications and the interfaces between them in order to make each of our teams more autonomous Right, being able to work independently, not be blocked by others, solve their own problems. How do we onboard people, especially in the remote world? Right, because I mean, COVID did a number on the entire industry. <laughs> right now, I mean, we were lucky that I mean, as software engineers, all you really need to be productive is a computer. But like, some things for sure have suffered. Right? Like being able to go into a, a room, right, with a whiteboard and talk about ideas, coming up with like uh, like onboarding. You used to be able to like sit next to someone and like look over their shoulder. And be like, hey, what was that? What did you do? Like, a lot of that's missing right now. How do we sort of get that again and in a world that's like where everyone is working from home? Yeah. So how how are you solving that? I mean, what, where are you with on that journey of of uh, adapting to this remoteness? So it's a great question. Like, I, I think as a company, we've always had a, one of our values is always learn and grow, right? And like very much focused on like curiosity and adaptability and trying. Right, and just fostering everyone to like, you know, do what they can to improve their own skills, their own knowledge. Yeah. And I think that does tie in pretty nicely with being in remote setting because like the same extension is the same, even if the mechanism is different. 
but like to, to answer more specifically, right? We've been trying to encourage more synchronous conversation because I, I think a people have a tendency to, you know, try to work through Slack or try to work through Jira or GitHub. And more often than not, you're better off having this impromptu, like five minute, yeah. you know, phone call. And yeah. uh, like, cause that leads to, I think, cooler heads, right? Cause I, I think it's easy to get, you know, passive like, sort of aggressive on some of the tickets <laughs> waiting for responses yeah. versus just saying, Hey, let's just like do a quick call. Let's resolve it. Let's make sure we understand it. Uh, it's been, we've also been when, before COVID, we used to do pair programming every Friday for about two uh, for uh, two hours, right? Where we would partner random people up across the entire organization, and they would just work on whatever, like so, you know, small ideas. And the goal was to give people from different teams context of what other teams are working on, but also a set of tools, right? A way of meeting new faces, seeing new people. Yeah. And we put a pause to it initially, like just because we couldn't get it to work remotely. And last month we brought it back again, right? So trying to get more of this, like fostering more of this um collaboration right more of this team dynamic like we've had people join that i've never met their coworkers yet yeah right so i'm sure for them it's extremely difficult and everyone's looking forward right to being in person and seeing their yes. you know colleagues yeah I, I i think we take it for granted those uh i don't know just people being uh i, I guess there's different dimensions of communications you know you got your yeah you know email you know one dimensional two dimensional where you you're chatting zoom uh, but, but being in the room with people to be able to see the mannerisms and the uh, 80% of the other communication uh, messages that are being emitted uh, in a room of people is um, is all kind of missing. And um, it's, so coming out of COVID, or, or, you know, we're not quite out of it yet. I, how, what's the company going to be doing going forward? Are you going to go back into an office format or is it? Um... Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we're valuing our options like similar to every other company. Right, like every company is trying to figure out like what does the like like post-COVID look like, and I mean we're keeping it open. Like I, I think the general sentiment is there will of course be people that do want to come in every single day, right? Because for them they miss the office, they are more productive in the office, they may have different you know situations at home. Yeah, like, you can imagine like you know someone has roommates and they're like I can't wait to go back to the office. Like <laughs> right? someone else realizes, hey, I'm actually pretty productive at home. Like I have a setup here. I'm not. I'm not interrupted and I'll go in, I don't know, a couple of days a week for like important meetings, right? That do benefit from being next to someone. And then other people will be like, hey, I'm perfectly happy living in the middle of nowhere, being fully remote. I think we're exploring all those options. Yes. Uh, we will have to figure out exactly what that means. And like, does that mean we're fully global? Like, will it depend on team? Will it depend on like organization? These are all questions. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to answer. And uh, I think the key, the key idea for us is sort of maintain that optionality until it's clear what happens. So for example, yeah. like, like I imagine like there are very few companies that are, you know, signing 10 year leases right now, right? Because they just don't know like how it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. So we're similar in that sense, right? We just want to see what, um, like there's this perception or like sense of what you think is going to happen, but I'm sure we'll be surprised by what actually happens. And we just need to be able to adapt to that. Yeah. And, um, the challenges that you've had leading that what's the what's been the biggest uh i guess challenge for you and and how have you solved that or are you still solving it i mean still solving it i i think just hiring hiring like onboarding and like hiring and onboarding have honestly been like the two most difficult ones like as well as like trying to maintain that strong culture that we've had mm. Cause like the people that, you know, were here for a while and like understand the triple way, like it's easy for them, right. To continue operating. And like, they have the same relationships that they had before, Yeah. but people that are coming brand new, like, how do we get them to understand like the way we operate? How do we you know, get them productive like as quickly as possible? Like yeah. a lot of these things are just still definitely well, ways for us to improve. Yeah. And, and, and are you finding the onboarding working or is it, is it kind of because um, I can imagine it's very difficult to you know if you're coming into a company you're not able to have those kind of quick conversations and kind of nudge or listen into conversation uh, yeah for sure it's like a lot of these smaller things right it's because it, it's pretty easy right for us to have sessions saying hey we will you know spend two hours explaining to you how the exchange works we will give you an onboarding buddy where you know every time you have a question you'll go to them but it's a lot of this softer subtle things that get lost and a lot of those soft things are really will contribute, right, to someone, right? Because it's like the small context, yeah. right? It's like knowing who talked about something else. It's overhearing something. 
And a lot of it is also like shifting. And, and the reality is a lot of what we've had to do because of COVID mm. is something we honestly should have done anyway. You know, like as a company gets larger, you just need to invest more in like documentation, right? More asynchronous communication mechanisms, yeah. like wiki, uh, like better, like document. Yeah. Like what I mentioned, like better documentation, like better tech specs. So like yeah. we started doing all that and then I had to like wish we would have done it sooner. Yeah, it's a good tip. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting how um, the importance of documentation, uh, particularly as you become more and more remote, um, how that starts to become more important, you know. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, another uh, tech leader kind of talked about is over-communicating and then filtering what you listen to or check in on, you know. Um, it's true. It's. I mean, as a, I think as a leader, you realise, like, it's what you say is not always what people hear. Yeah. Right, so you want to say the same thing over and over and over again but the expectation is that over time like once people hear enough it will start to embed itself and then people will start to actually you know alter their behavior to mm. accommodate yes yeah that's great and what, what kind of things keep you up at night as a leader you know if there's if i, I can imagine it's challenging on a number of things. what's the biggest thing that challenges you it's a great question so as we've grown and I think this is the case with every successful company, every successful product. The product just gets more complicated, right? And and it's not like a bad thing. It's just like the nature of it, right? You have more customers. You have more complex use cases. Yeah. So how do you, so it's like, how do you not avoid the complexity because that's inevitable, but how do you make that complexity sort of linear in growth, right? Like versus uh, like combinatorial. Sort of that sort of analogy I have, right? Like, how could you think about your systems in a way where you're decoupling them, right? Where you don't need one person to know every single thing about how everything works. Instead, be able to be productive in their own domain, in their own area. So how do you think about these um, sphere applications? Like in that sense, while taking into account the product roadmap, while taking into account like the tech investments in the tech infrastructure investments you need to make. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that when you structure teams? And a lot of what we're doing now is figuring that out. Like I mentioned like earlier that we started with native, then we introduced video. Now we're doing like streaming television and they are all, you know, going through the same, you think as they're all going through the same code base right now, but we did obviously have to make tweaks to support video, tweaks to support streaming. Yeah. And what are these sort of adjustments we'll need to make in the future? How can we make sure that these adjustments, you know, don't, us, you know, don't negatively impact what we've already built. Yeah. How could we make these new adjustments as quickly as we used to make them in the past? How, how you kind of develop the stuff and then keep the thing still live. This is the kind of hope, open heart surgery type thing, you know? You've got a lot of transactions going on here. And- yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, so I, this goes back to probably one of the perks of Attack is leaning into what makes us unique, right? And what are the constraints uh, that other companies have that we do not have. And one of them is, and like, I'm sure earlier, like two of them are one that we're able to move very quickly. And each ad is worth fractions of a penny. So what that has allowed us to do, and we've embraced it like almost across every one of our applications, is the ability to deploy small slivers of traffic to production. Right. So, so what that means, right, is like we call it like a staging environment, but we could deploy 1% of our traffic to a you know to a new code base right. and then what we do is we collect the data and like given the, our scale like it only takes a couple hours you know get statistically significant results and then you can actually look to compare the distributions like how did our click-through rates change from version one like revision one to revision b or yeah. uh, revision one to revision two how did our you know revenue like normalized revenue change how right. did our latencies change and that's been an incredibly valuable way for us to maintain our velocity right being able to like launch something quickly, you know, go through code review, go through like standard tests, but then do this sort of production rollout by deploying to one, to a small percentage of production traffic. And if it looks good, scaling it higher, higher, higher. Mm. Right. So that act as like a sort of this last check of the real world test where the real world just has so many more situations, like so many more combinations of you know, complexity to throw at you. And it's incredibly valuable for us to be able to, you know, take advantage of that. Brilliant. Love it. And uh, architectures that you've got around this, you, you, obviously uh, in the kind of cloud now and, and, and doing so, is there any kind of particular architecture approaches that you take to be able to manage this? 
No, for sure. Uh, so different applications have different requirements. Uh, like I mentioned, one of our core components is this real-time bidding system that does need to respond within like uh, 200 milliseconds to mm -hmm. our uh, to our auction. So once again, like there's like performance fair around, right? So in that case, we have a globally distributed, right, using like network or like geographic load balancing, right? Where if you're a user in Asia, it'll go to our Asia data center. If you're using the US, it'll go to like either the East Coast or the West Coast and so forth. Yeah. But one model that we've had great success is saying like, what is the ultimate goal of each of our services, right? So for the services whose job is to only handle these, you know, real-time bidding auctions, like that's all they do. They live out there on the edge, yeah. right? They don't interact with any of the databases. Like all they're doing is servicing these requests that go in and out, in and out, in and out, like billions of times, you know, each, I know, minute, each hour. Wow. And what they do is then we have a separate application that interacts with all the databases, collects all the business rules, validates all the business rules, and then pushes these updates like to these sort of like edge nodes. Wow. Right. So the, the analogy there, or the mental model there is like, what is the limiting factor in each of your applications and then design and focus and streamline your applications to focus only on that. Yeah. And that's been a pretty good way for us to, I think, evolve our architecture. And when you realize that, hey, something's not scaling, like decouple it right into its own application or its own service. Like we haven't gone full in on like microservices as many other companies have. Like we've been much more thoughtful about it. Like where are the breaking points? And let's see what we can do. Like if we don't do anything, what's going to happen a year from now? Yeah. And if things are, and then using that to prioritize our investments. Yes. I mean, that's quite a, um, one of the challenges of being a tech leader because you're not having to, it's not a case of creating a solution or uh, facilitating the creation of a solution. Uh, everything's changing and the demand on it's changing. So you're having to kind of, look ahead i mean is it, is it so what's the process that you have there do you have like uh weekly or monthly kind of calls with people to look at the demand the the loading uh the architectural where you can hear the architecture creaking we so an investment we made last year was have each team come up with success metrics right that are correlated that include both commercial but also technical metrics that are correlated with their mission and purpose yeah and we use uh prometheus which is like a you know a technology to collect stats and then Grafana, a way to visualize them. And we have dashboards for each team that they monitor the SLAs on top of, right? Wow. So for example, our data engineering teams, SLAs are around like uh, arrival time, right? like how quickly does it take them to process uh, an hour? And if anything's violated, like that is something that one will trigger, you know, an incident and we have a variety of severity levels, but then it's also a way for the team to invest in the roadmap. Like, especially yeah. on the infrastructure side, right? Like, hey, it looks like we're trending in the wrong direction. Like, we need to start making this investment now in order to, you know, change the course. Yeah, right. And that's been pretty successful model for us, right? As long as each team understands what they're responsible for, then they're responsible for tracking these metrics, these success metrics, and then crafting a roadmap and a plan to address them. Wow, I love it. I love the idea of having these kind of dashboards and, and uh, updates kind of feeding up to yourself to to be able to kind of see whether, you know, there's something on the horizon. Brilliant. And like you don't want to react to it, right? Like you want to, you yeah. want to get ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So as we come towards the kind of closing arc of the podcast, I just wanted to kind of ask you some questions around your advice to tech leaders out there, aspiring tech leaders, sorry. What, what advice would you give to aspiring tech leaders uh, of how to kind of get onto the, uh, onto their kind of career journey and maybe uh, not make some mistakes you made? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Like, I think what there are something. So, uh, I'll give a few thoughts. One is that there are some things that you will that some people are generally going to be better at than others, right? Just by nature, na like disposition. At the same time, there will be some things that until you do it, you just don't know how to do it. Like a, a typical example is like performance management law, well, right? Like you have never had to let someone go until you've had to let someone go. Mm. And of course, some people will be better at it than others. And some people have, you know, have a natural ability to do it versus others. But like you will find experiences that you have never done before. Yeah. Because that's one. Two is, and I suffered from this especially early on, is you have a tendency, like people have a tendency to go back to what's comfortable, not necessarily what's important. So if I do it again, I would say like every single day, right? Every single week, like what is actually important for me to be doing right now? Like what is the thing that only I can do and that won't get done otherwise and focusing mm -hmm. on that, 
right? Because I think oftentimes you will go back to, you know, writing code just because you, you want to feel good and you think like you're contributing, <laughs> but there's so many other people that could do that, yes. right? What is just by nature of your position, like in the organization, like what are the things that only you can do that, whether it's knowledge, whether it's, you know, authority that only you can do and how do you do that and focus on only that. Great. And then three is the communication element, right? Like I, I think being very clear and like really internalizing that what you want have in your head is very rarely going to be what other people have in their head, especially <laughs> if you've never said it before. And then if, and when you do say it, what they hear is not necessarily going to be what you've like actually intended for them to hear. Yes. So just making sure they, like, I think around those three are probably the biggest. Yeah. Great, great tips there. I mean, we can, we can unpack those as, as subjects in their own right. But, uh, you know, th thank you for that. And and also uh, to maybe just generally tech leaders or leaders in general, what books have been kind of gateway books for you that have uh, inspired you and, and uh, kind of created uh, good tangent changes in the direction of your leadership? That's a good question. Uh, so I've had... It's interesting because the reason I'm struggling to answer it is I used to read a lot of management books and, but before I was a manager, they were kind of nebulous and vague, right? So there was real value in rereading them. Yeah. Uh, I'll, the top books, at least that I've found, at least from the engineering management side, there's three like off the top of my head, right? There's Manager's Path, which is like Camille uh, Fournier wrote, The Making of a Manager, and then Elegant Puzzle. And those are very much focused on like engineering leadership. Yeah. Right, because like, uh, of course, they address some of the uh, manager points like outside of engineering, but they do focus on the technical leadership. And I've had like, I just enjoy them, and I give them to like have uh, the manager on my team read them. The other ones that I actually liked a bit more abstractly were written about more around like startups, right, and, like entrepreneurial journeys and coaching. Right, one is Trillion Dollar Coach, so it's by uh, about uh, Bill Campbell. Right. Uh, all right, and then there's also. A hard thing about hard things, which I didn't really like by Ben Horowitz. Yeah. Which is more about like, you know, startups. And, and, that, and the reason I like those is because they're focusing not just, you know, on like engineering, but just on business, just mm -hmm. around like, like mentorship, like dealing with like struggle. And wow. I, I think in that case, like that way. And then the other piece I generally do is uh, try to, you know, keep in touch with like blogs, newsletters. Like the one I really huge fan of, right? Everyone's like first round review, which, uh, so it's first round is a VC fund, but they will do interviews like, you know, maybe once a week, every couple of weeks with leaders in their field and then have like a pretty in-depth article covering different subject areas. Sometimes it's design, right? Sometimes it's structuring engineering teams. Other times it's like coaching or mentorship. So I right. think I found that incredibly valuable, incredibly helpful just to do. And then the other one uh, is very much like a software engineering newsletter called Software Lead, Day, uh, software Lead Weekly, uh, where every Friday you get like a collection of other links to online resources, you know, that are top mind. Some of it's Twitter threads, other times it's pretty thought provoking article. Right. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of reading there. Yeah. It's a lot of reading. I've, <laughs> uh, I, I've been taking notes like, uh, as I read, like what I like, what I don't like. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much like that as well. I've, uh, the act of, uh, making notes, but it sounds like you're a continuous learner, which is obviously, a, uh, that's what, you know, good leaders are, are like. Um, and, Thank you for sharing your books. And I'm going to pretend to be a tech genie now, and I'm going to offer you a tech wish. What would you wish for uh, from the tech genie? Oh, my goodness. Tech genie, oh, fill all the open heads, fill all the open roles we have available. Like, <laughs> come up with this optimal engineering structure that's going to stand the test of time. Uh, like, fully embrace, you know, fully get us to this, like, CI/CD system right where we're still being you know, like every time someone opens up a pull request it gets approved it gets deployed to like small percentage of traffic automatically if things look good it gets deployed to 100 percent automatically right? it's like i guess getting rid of a lot of the technical operations work yes right like letting people focus on like the product code and stuff yes yeah so as a tech gene i'm rubbing my chin thinking i'm you know we'll see what we can do on that front and uh, to help you out and make that come come true but uh it sounds like kind of quite common uh common challenges that tech leaders have you know especially around the hiring piece finding good quality engineers so as we kind of come to the end of our podcast what key takeaway would you leave with tech leader men and women out there as a parting gift such a such a tough question 
I'll just say it's definitely challenging, but also rewarding. I, I do think, especially for someone that did come, you know, from being in the weeds of coding, it is a very different skill set that you really do need to like work on and lean in on. Right. Right. Like it is definitely worth it at the end of the day, but like there for sure is, especially in the beginning, the sense of like imposter syndrome, right? It's like you're questioning, like, am I making, have I made the right decision? Right. Mm -hmm. Like things are so hard. Like I don't understand. I feel I'm constantly failing. And I think that's normal, right? You sort of just need to, you know, keep at it until it become, until you sort of get better at it, until you build up the expertise, the skills. So thank you very much, Dan, for your uh, time. It's uh, been great having you on, on uh, CTO Confessions, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Well, likewise, and thank you for having me. Well, I don't know about you, but that was a real eye-opener into an industry we are all faced with, literally, but rarely know the tech shenanigans and magic that goes on under the surface. I learned quite a lot about the innovation and the challenges faced in this arena. So what were your key takeaways or learning points, as we like to say in IT Labs? Mine were as follows. Number one, there's lots and lots of innovation happening in the marketing space. As the channels of advertising get squeezed in some areas and others open up and a healthy evolution and competition starts to fire up, the innovation comes in to fill the space. My second key takeaway is about leadership. We all suffer it, we all have it, imposter syndrome. And it stops us from aspiring to what we're capable of. Don't let it stop you. Many tech leaders I've spoken to have felt this in aspects of their journey. See yourself as creative, resourceful, and a rock star that's gonna make it. And my final key takeaway is the transition from techie to tech leader and what it requires. So my key takeaway from this was about letting go some of those hard-earned skills that you've developed over your career and replacing them with ones that are going to make you into a leader who brings out the best in your people. Especially resisting the need to go back to what you're comfortable with doing. Stay in your leadership space and avoid leaving a void when you go off doing those little technical things that you can easily delegate to others. Stay in your lane. So thank you, Dan. Thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom with the tech leadership community. Wishes of more innovation for Triple Lift in this space. And also to you, Dan, for your leadership and your passion of solving challenging problems and coming up with innovative solutions. Thank you. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.